the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 16 is uh, where we're headed. And we are down to, I hate to say it, the final message out of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we've been doing this for over two years, going through this verse by verse. And we come to the closing verses, the last two uh, listed here in the Gospel of Mark chapter 16. And uh, we're going to read those and, and look at that here in a moment. Over the last two years, we have followed the Lord Jesus. That's what we've been doing. At least I hope that's what we've been doing. Uh, I know as I've studied through these messages, I've come to know him better. Uh, I've come to see him in a different light, and I trust that you have as well. And we've looked at him as he walked this earthly ministry for three years. That's really what he did over a course of about three years. And we followed him as he battled some of the religious leaders. You remember those old Pharisees? They popped up a few times, didn't they? We followed him as he trained his disciples, trained people that were followers. And I hope that uh, many of you have decided to follow him more closely in that. We've followed him as he healed the sick and performed miracles, right? Even raised the dead. And we discovered that he is indeed the one who has the power to transform. He is God himself. We followed him different places, didn't we? Yeah, we saw him there uh, at the opening of the Gospel of Mark, at the baptism of Christ by the Jordan River, and then through the desert, and even on the, uh, the open water, the sea, over the mountains, the valleys, into the cities, into the villages. We've followed him all along, all the way to the cross. And we looked at the cross of Christ, and we looked at the crucifixion, and all that entailed there. And now, as in last week, we looked at his instructions that he gave his followers, his final words. And then the last verses of the Gospel of Mark record for us uh, a great and mighty event, an event that is as important as any other event in the life of Christ. And it is uh, extremely important for all of us today in that. And we'll begin reading in Mark 16 and verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, again, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these last two verses found in the Gospel of Mark and the importance of the ascension of Jesus. We thank you today that we do serve a risen and ascended Christ who is the King of glory. And we ask this morning, Lord, as we look into your word, you would teach us as only you can. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The importance of the ascension. And this is an area that isn't talked about a lot. I don't hear a lot of messages anyways on the ascension of Christ, but it is Uh, what the gospel writers close off with it's what the book of acts opens up with which is jesus ascending up into heaven taking his place at the right hand of the father and we read in mark's gospel just a short account of what takes place actually mark is very uh, he he leaves out the 40 days or at least most of it anyways leaves out that 40 days of teaching that jesus had with his disciples where the other gospel writers add some extra details in that weren't uh, that aren't recorded here and mark chooses to focus on the service of the lord and he focuses on this event of the ascension he goes right from the instruction of the great commission 
to 40 days later, the ascension of Christ that takes place. And what is uh, the, the question that kind of goes out is, is what is so important about the ascension? And I want to look at two primary points this morning, and we're going to we're going to jump around in the Bible, okay, and look at a bunch of different scriptures this morning, as time allows, and look at uh, these points, why it's important. Number one, it's important for the Savior. It's important for Jesus. It's important for Him being the Christ, the Messiah. The reason it is important is because it demonstrates, number one, that His purpose is clear. Jesus came to this earth not to establish a political earthly kingdom. But he came that he might, at least the first time, that he might come and save people from their sins. That was his primary purpose. And lest you think his purpose isn't clear, and and remember, his disciples, they got it mixed up a bit. They thought he was, you know, he would... Even after the crucifixion, they were confused. They thought he would initiate a kingdom here on earth and that that kingdom would probably do away with Rome and and all those corrupt religious officials and everything else. And they were looking for a political kingdom. And I'll tell you something, you won't find any hope in any of man's politics, okay? I don't think I have to convince you of that in this day and age, all right? You will not find any hope in that, but you will find hope in Christ. And he will one day establish even an earthly kingdom at his second coming. And that's yet future. But the first time that he came, he came to save people from their sins. And his ascension into heaven, taking the right place there before the throne of God or at the throne of God, uh, establishes that that is why indeed that he came in those things. The book of Acts adds some details about that event that Mark does not include but Luke in the book of Acts does in verse 8 is one of the great commission verses of Acts 1 8 it says but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth now when he had spoken these things while they watched he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He made it clear that his purpose was to ascend into heaven, but that he was going to come again. He was going to do that. And that leads us to the second point as well. Not only it's important to the Savior in that it establishes his purpose, but it also establishes his presence. His presence is real. And that's part of the ascension of Christ. When the Lord Jesus ascended back to heaven, the door was open for the Spirit of God to descend and to take up his dwelling within the hearts of believers. And that occurs in Acts chapter 2. And we won't turn there, but that's the day of Pentecost. About 10 days after Jesus ascended. Penta means 50, and it was the day of 50, okay? That's the Feast of Pentecost. It was 50 days after the Feast of Firstfruits. The Feast of Firstfruits was the day of the resurrection. So you know the timing of this is very significant. So just essentially before Jesus, or just after Jesus is ascended into heaven, the, the Holy Spirit is given in Acts chapter 2. And there begins what I call a new dispensation 
in theological terms, a time where all of a sudden, not that God has changed, but his interaction with man has changed. Because in the Old Testament, you know, men like David could pray this prayer, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because the Spirit of God would dwell on people and, and he would reside with people, but he also would move on and he could come back. And there was that in the Old Testament time. They were not sealed by the Holy Spirit in that sense. But in Acts chapter 2, as Jesus had promised, and we'll look at this further, he gave the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, and he came to dwell with those that were believers and actually take up residence with them. The Bible says we're baptized into one body by his spirit, identified with Christ. And that's important because that's his presence. His presence is very real. In John chapter 16 and in verse 7, Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now think about that, okay? That I go away, and I think my... uh, presentation might jump around here i don't know for if i do not go away the helper will not come to you and then the helper the comforter is the one who is the holy spirit very clear but if i depart i will send him to you and then again in john 14 12 most assuredly i say to you he who believes in me the works that i do he will do also And the greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. You know what the neat thing is? Is that because Jesus ascended into heaven, uh, the the work of God actually is, uh, well, he empowers his followers uh, in a special way. Think about that because Jesus says to his disciples, you'll do even greater works. Now, I think of that because I'm a disciple of Christ, okay? I'm not one of the 12, okay, don't you? But I'm a follower of Christ, and I hope that many of you are followers, all of you are followers of Christ. But you know what? I, how can I do greater works than the Lord Jesus? That doesn't make sense, right? Well, guess what? It does, because the Holy Spirit is given to us as the helper. It implies someone who comes along to comfort us, to help us, to walk with us, to empower us. And the scriptures teach that. And therefore, as the thousands, 3,000 3, believers on the day of Pentecost, you read that, Acts chapter 2, and then thousands and thousands more until today you have millions and millions of people around the world that are followers of Christ. And you know what? He's empowering each and every one if they'll yield themselves to him. And therefore, where Christ, while he was here on earth, could only be in one place at one time, think of how his church has expanded throughout the globe. And it is there. And that's why when Jesus says... You'll do greater things or greater works because he's ascended and he's with us and he's he's not left us alone. Well, it's important. uh, The ascension is important because it makes his purpose clear. His presence is real. And thirdly, his plan is understandable. His plan is understandable. And I think of that because you say, well, what what was God's plan? Uh, Was he coming here? to um to just you know teach us some good moral lessons what was he doing you know and there's lots of different uh, you know answers on those things or people would say but really he came to give his life as a ransom for many he came to save us from our sins and god sent his spirit and he to take that message and to apply it really to the hearts of people And in John 16, and again, verses 7 to 11, 
He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now listen. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. He's referring to Satan himself has been judged. Do you realize that he is the one that he establishes his plan and it's very clear and part of that plan involves you and me the followers of Christ had he not ascended into heaven his disciples would not have gone out his disciples would still be sitting there not today but they would have been sitting there in Jerusalem and they would have been hoping that Jesus would teach them some more and they would have not gone he had to go away first and to show them that well his ascension is important because it establishes his purpose, his presence, his plan. But lastly, on this point anyways, his payment is seen as completed. All right, His payment is complete. And that's an, an extremely important one because we read in the scripture that, well, first of all, you think about this. If Jesus had further work on earth to do during that ministry time, then he would have stuck around, right? Uh, he doesn't. He ascends back to take his place at the right hand of the Father, place of honor, because he was the one who paid the price for salvation. And in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6, very important prophetic verse, written hundreds of years before Christ was crucified, the Lord is speaking here and he says, And one will say to him, that's the Lord, What are these wounds between your arms? And then he will answer him, or answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Do you realize the prophecy concerning the coming of the Lord in Zechariah's day was what, such that he would come someday and he'd be wounded. And he would be wounded in his own house, the house of Israel. He came onto his own, his own received him not. That's what the Bible says. That's, that's a sad reality. Although... There were lots of Jews that received him also, weren't there? There were those that followed him. His disciples, were uh, they were Jewish. The day of Pentecost, the 3,000 that get saved there and the church age begins, a new dispensation opens up. And you know what? It's a Jewish flavor because they're all Jews in that. So I'm not saying he gave up on the Jew. Not at all. He came onto his own and as a nation, as a people, they rejected him. But yet many also followed him. That's what he says. As, as, to many, as to those who have received him, to them gave he the power to become the, the children of God, the sons of God. And that's John chapter 1 verse 12, right? And we know that Jesus came to be wounded. He came to go to a cross. It was foreordained by God that he might do that. And he accomplished that plan perfectly. He accomplished that payment perfectly when jesus hung on the cross and he said it is finished it was finished no more need for another sacrifice no more need for lambs to be brought every year and be killed on a jewish altar and their blood sprinkled so that sin might be the remission of sins be taken care of and that atonement work that was seen would be taken care of for another year that was all temporary and it was necessary but it was a temporary thing 
And it could not in and of itself save. It was the aspect of trusting the Lord that saved them. Just like today, the same thing. You're saved not by a work that you do, but you're saved by the finished work of Christ, by looking back and saying, I trust you, Lord, that you're able to save me from my sins. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the writer puts it this way, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And that's the, that was the old system. These priests were continuing, even after Christ came, and even after he went to the cross and paid the price, they were still there offering daily these sacrifices, the sin offerings and the trespass offerings and all the different offerings that went on. And there was a cumbersome system, and it could not save. Look what he goes on to say this in verse 12 of Hebrews 10. But this man, that's Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected, how long? Forever. Those who are being sanctified. Oh, that, listen, the gospel is wrapped up in those verses right there from the book of Hebrews. The sacrifice of Christ is sufficient to save forever. He never has to be sacrificed again. You don't have to call him down from heaven. You don't have to say, oh God, save me again, all that. His payment was accomplished. He's able to sanctify forever. And look what it says in the last part of verse 14. For he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's present tense. If you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, you're secure in your salvation because you're being sanctified. You say, well... Who is sanctifying me? He is. Because his blood and his payment for that sacrifice, his vicarious death, accomplished salvation forever. That's not forever, you know, except a few years or a few moments. or It's forever. That means if you've trusted Christ, he sanctifies you. And you're being sanctified. And you too will be perfected someday when you stand in his presence in heaven. Even the flesh will be perfected as it's raised up again someday in that. Verse 15, it says of, of Hebrews, and I'll, I'll read on here. It says, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he had said before. And that's a strange statement, but it's referring back to the Old Testament. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, and I will write them. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Wow, that's, that's a blessing. <laughs> All those different things. The book of Hebrews, he's the crucified one. And I'm thankful that his payment is complete in that. He's the crucified one. He's also uh, another verse from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. Verses 11 to 14. But Christ came as, our, as a high priest of good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle. And he, excuse me, and I got to go back here um, where it, it moved on me. There we go. And with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all. There it is again. Having obtained eternal redemption. 
you can't get away from those words in the book of Hebrews. I think if you want to argue that you can lose your salvation because you sin and you, you mess up and you do things like that, if you've truly trusted Christ and by faith that transaction has taken place, you have eternal redemption. The word eternal means forever. It's not something that is removed. It's not taken away. It's eternal because his sacrifice is so great. It's better than anything we could do. And then he goes on to say this in verse 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He's the crucified one. You know what that means? Is that not only positionally are you saved, that's being sanctified, and you're secure because of his eternal redemption, but you're also changed. And I'm a firm believer that if this stuff is true, then it should offer a changed heart, a changed life. He'll write, as he quotes there from Jeremiah, he'll write his laws now in your heart. Not just in your, on your outside, but on the inside. That's really what we need is a change on the inside, don't we? We need a new birth. We need to be born again. All that is accomplished by Jesus, and it's done through faith. And you know what? He was the one who returned with his own blood into heaven and has, because of that, offered himself. See, there wasn't anything else to offer. There wasn't anything else that could save. There wasn't anyone else that could save. Nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, nothing under the earth, but only Jesus. God himself, the Son, who came and he offered himself once for all. That's quite a sacrifice, isn't it? You know, we see sort of analogies of that. We see sacrifice in our own world. And we see even Christians who have sacrificed. And, and I tell you, we can learn a lot from that. And you think about the great love that someone must have to sacrifice themselves or put themselves even at risk for other people, people that might not even appreciate them. In mission history, I think of Dr. Claude, uh, Claude excuse me, Barlow, Claude Barlow. And he uh, was a missionary in the early uh, 20th century with the American Baptist Foreign Missionary Society. And he went to China. As a medical doctor, a teacher, a missionary as well, uh, you can see there he lived 1876 to uh, 1969. And you know what I love about this guy? He went in a days when disease was rampant everywhere in the world. And he went, uh, after studying uh, at John Hopkins, and he went and goes there to China, and he saw the Chinese people just ravished with disease. On one occasion, he actually, in helping someone who was uh, recovering from tuberculosis, he himself contracted tuberculosis, had to come back to the United States, and they cured him of it after quite a, a while in a, in a sanitarium. And then he, he was able to come back, and he went back as a missionary. While he was there, he discovered that a lot of the Chinese were dying of uh, dysentery and other diseases associated with the, the uh, you know, diarrhea and dehydration, all that, and discovered that most of them that were suffering this had a parasite, flukes. And there are these little parasites that, I don't want to go any further than that, they're nasty, I guess. And he was in a country at the time that didn't have much for laboratory equipment and scientific research and all that. And he tried everywhere to find where they were picking this parasite up. He couldn't find it. He thought about trying to take a sick Chinese person back to the United States so they could study him. But the immigration officials wouldn't let him. Well, it makes sense, right? And then back in that day, you got on a ship. You might not even survive the passage. So you know what he did? He went one day and he removed 32 of these flukes from 
uh, a Chinese man who was sick. He put them in a little beaker. He went in his office and he went boom. And then he got on a ship hoping he'd make it back to the United States. By the time he got back to the United States, uh, several, several weeks later, he was very sick. He was almost on his deathbed. He got himself to John Hopkins University and their research department. He said, you need to save my life because he said, whatever's got me is killing thousands and thousands of Chinese people and we need to know where it's coming from. And they did. They, they were able to figure out what was going on. They discovered that it was coming from the host. Uh, the intermediary host was a snail that they ate in China. And, uh, and that's where they were picking up this disease. And in doing so, he saved thousands and thousands, potentially millions of Chinese people. And I think about that. Would you do something like that? You'd say, that guy was crazy. I mean, drank something he took out of somebody else's body. And it wasn't even something from their body. It was a parasite. And, and he drank that, put himself at risk so that he might save others. You know, Jesus' sacrifice is much greater than that even. Because he didn't just put himself at risk. He actually died in our place. And by his own power, he was raised up. And by his own power, the power of God, he ascended up as well. Victorious as the conquering king. In Colossians chapter 2, it reminds us that he is the conqueror. And you, being dead in your trespasses and this uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having it nailed or having nailed it to the cross. Here, Paul, as he writes to the Colossians, he says, all those, those laws you broke, <laughs> I'm there too. All the laws I broke, all those commandments that I broke, because I, I can't even get past the first one to have no other God before him, right? Because there's times I'm, I practice idolatry by, by putting something more important in my life than God. And there's no one, I, I think, that, can, that can't keep the commandments. You break those. And you know what? That's forever against us. Because God being a holy God, a righteous God, he never forgets. And he can't forget. He's unable to forget. And that ordinance is against us. Jack Karen, you have broken God's law. And here it is, listed. You know what Jesus did in a real sense? And Paul uses a figurative here, but he's talking about it in a real sense. What he did, he took that ordinance, that list, and he nailed it to the cross. He took the place of Jack Karen. He took the place of, you put your name in there, okay? And he took your violations and he took them on himself. And he said, I'll pay it. I'll pay it. Unfortunately, it wasn't just a fine. It was a death sentence associated with breaking God's law. And that's what Jesus did. He did that for us. Look what he says. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them trying triumphing over them in it referring to that crucifixion jesus triumphed over his enemies publicly in doing so nevertheless and this is uh, john chapter 6 that's 16 verse 7 and again uh, this is nevertheless i tell you that the truth (coughs) it is expedient for you that i go away for if i go not away the comforter will not come onto you but if i depart i will send him onto you 
And where I'm going with this is he is the crucified one. He's the conquering one. He's also the consoling one. The consoling one. And I had previously read this verse, and we read it in New King James. And in the King James, the authorized version originally, the word comforter is, in the newer translations, helper. You say, well, who got it right, who got it wrong, whatever. It means, the Greek word means both comforter and helper. And I wanted to show you that from both versions because uh, there it explains a little bit more about this aspect of why the Holy Spirit had to come. Because Jesus is ascended, we have his consolation. We have the very fact that he's able to comfort us in our time of need. And that's what that word comforter or helper means. In the Greek, it means to be summoned, to call to one side, to give aid, uh, one who pleads another's cause before a judge, right? An advocate. It also means someone who can counsel for defense, a legal assistant, uh, one who pleads another cause with one, uh, an intercessor, and in the uh, wildest sense, it says here, a helper, a one who is able to succor, aid, assist. And all that is wrapped up in that one little Greek word, and that's what we get when the Holy Spirit has been given to us. He is the one who's our helper. Because Jesus is ascended, I get the Holy Spirit. I get God the Holy Spirit and God the Son because of that. And by the way, he says he sends another comforter. The word another in the John's Gospel means one of the same kind in that. He is that one for us. And I'm thankful he's able to do that. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. I told you to hold on because we're in a lot of references here and I don't expect you to memorize all of them by next week, but maybe in two weeks, okay? Uh, we'll do that. But listen, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is the one who is able to confess us before God, the Son. Because of his action, because of his resurrection, because of his ascension, because of where he is seated today, he is the one who intercedes on our behalf. All the time. I love that. It says that. He, he's able to do that. He ever lives to make intercession. Always living to make intercession for them. There's never a time he won't make intercession for me. This is a good thing because otherwise my sin could be brought back up. <laughs> and somebody might accuse me. Like the devil himself who's called the accuser of the brethren. And he'd say, look, there he is. He did it again. He's a sinner. But Jesus pleads my cause. It's paid for. Paid in full. Paid in full. Paid in full. Always. Oh, that's, that's a good thing. Well, he's also the confirming one. He's the confirming one. Because the Holy Spirit is given, he is the one who's able to, uh, well, he brings us together. He confirms us in the body of Christ. And I get that from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Paul writes here, For by one Spirit we were all baptized, that's not water baptism, that's spirit baptism, into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. You know what I'm thankful for is that in Christ there's no distinction between races. There's no distinction between free and, and slave. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All those things are wrapped up right in that one verse and elsewhere it's taught too. That's the great thing about Christianity. True biblical Christianity, by the way, has done that. It's brought uh, actually down the walls that man puts up. <laughs> Do you realize that the Bible says this? 
In Acts chapter 17, when Paul was at Athens, you remember this? He preaches there and he says, uh, we are of all of one blood, referring to all of humanity. Here he is, this Jewish man standing there with these Greek philosophers, these Gentiles, and he says, we're all of one blood. <laughs> we all need one Savior too. And the great thing about Christianity, it has helped take uh, and, and, you know what, remove those barriers. Now, people would like to repaint history and say, oh, no, those fundamentalist Christians, you know, they're awful. They like to put those walls up, and some of them do. But listen, true biblical Christianity doesn't. It doesn't. And that's why the songwriter could say, the slave is my brother. And you know what? When I look in our own tragic history in America, and you look at issues like slavery and those things, and you say, where'd that come from? That came from sin, <laughs> man's heart. And uh, man's always a try to... to to enslave someone and sin will enslave us and you know what it was mostly uh people who had a you know christian worldview and there were some that were very vocal christians that stood up and became abolitionists and saying this is wrong it is wrong because the scripture tells us it is wrong morally and those things were done away with eventually through much fighting and all those things but you know what it came out of the heart of seeing it from scripture and you know what? I'm, I'm brought together in Christ. I think of that years ago, and I'm, I'm praying in front of a church one, one uh, Wednesday night with a group of brothers. We're all from the military, and the Lord was just working in our hearts that night. And I was kneeling down, and I was praying, and I looked on my next, uh, next to me, a dear brother uh, named uh, uh, Brother Wilson, and there he is, a black guy. He was one of the sergeants there in, on my unit. I look on the other side, and he's this man, Alberto Ballesteros, there's Alberto, he's Hispanic, and here me being the white guy in the middle, all that. And you know what? I said, oh, we're all in Christ. And we're, there's no difference, God. Thank you so much for that, Lord. Thank you. Man would like to put those barriers up, but Christ brings them down because he baptized us into one body, the body of Christ. And oh, I'm thankful for that. Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one who is, uh, he is in us, okay? He is in us. Oh, what a, a wonderful, wonderful truth there as well. Now I've got to move along. I know I'm getting out of here. I'm really only through one point, I hate to tell you. But we'll move on. The second point will go faster. He's also our forerunner, by the way. And that helps confirm things. He's the one who, who completes and accomplishes. I think of that because in um, John chapter 14, remember this? Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. You know what? He's preparing a place. That's called heaven. And he's working on that. He's completing it to this very moment in time. He's accomplishing his work. Verse 3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Uh, the, one of the reasons Jesus ascended into heaven is to go and prepare a place for us. Isn't that good? 
Later on, John would write here in his epistle, 1 John 3, verses 1 to 3, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Oh, amen to that. That's the changed life. And that's a reminder that he's, he's the one who's coming again. He's returning. And he'll be here for us. Well, you have the importance of the ascension. It was important for the Savior. But secondly and lastly, all right, I'll move along, was it's important to the saints. The saints are those that have trusted him. The word saint in scripture is a word referring to believers. It means one who's called out and it has the idea of somebody who walks holy. And we should have a changed life, right? As John writes, you purify yourself when you have that hope. He's the one who's coming again and it's important. It's important for us, those who are followers of Christ. It's important, number one, because of our ministry or their ministry if you want to use it that way do you realize you have a ministry in mark's gospel in this two verses that we started out with they follow immediately after the command of the lord to go out and to preach the gospel to every creature that's our ministry and because he's ascended into heaven that responsibility and authority has been given to those are who are his followers i'm thankful for that because He's the one who is able to to really accomplish that through his church. You say, do we ever make a difference down here? Uh, I hope so. Uh, I don't know how you all got here or how I got here today if someone didn't make a difference. Ultimately, the Lord's work, but someone took the time to share the gospel with you and me somewhere along the line, and now we're sitting here in this room together, and I see where he changes people, doesn't he? Back in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, when Paul was at Thessalonica, it didn't go well right away. When he was there in Thessalonica, as he was preaching, and he was there three weeks in the Sabbath, uh, in the synagogue, reasoning with them, and opening, alleging that Christ was the one who, who had to suffer, had to die, and he also rose again. You know what? There were some that believed, but there were a lot that didn't. And the ones that didn't believe, they got angry about it, and their persecution arose. And this is their testimony excuse me, testimony of Paul. In Acts 17, 6 says, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. (laughs) Paul and his companions, when they went to Thessalonica, they turned it upside down. Now, if the world's already upside down, headed the wrong way, when you turn it upside down, you put it upside right. Okay, just so you know. The testimony of those who were unbelievers said they've turned my world upside down. I'm a firm believer that where Christianity is accepted and people follow him and they yield to him, that even culture has to move aside because the word of truth comes in and changes lives and it changes people. It really does. Acts 13.48 says this, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. There was a change that went on. And the Gentiles themselves had changed. Well, it was important for their ministry. 
the saints, and uh, it's important for the master as well, right? The master. (laughs) And I think of that because, really, we partner together with the Lord. This isn't a one-man show. You know, this isn't me doing all this. It's him and me and you and every believer throughout the age, right, that have worked. In verse 20 of Mark 16, look what it says. Referring to the disciples, they went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord working, what is the next word? With them. Not through them. I mean, it could be through them. He was working through them, but he was working with them. Do you realize the Lord has us as co-laborers with himself? I don't think you can work with a greater partner. <laughs> you couldn't. I'm glad because there's days I look out and I think, oh, the needs are too great. I can't do this. I need only look to the Lord because he's right there working with us. Thankful for that today. He's doing those things. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6 says this, And because you are sons of God, or sons, God has sent forth the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. The Trinity is wrapped right up in that verse. Do you see that? Because God sent forth His Son, right? We get the Holy Spirit as well. And now I can cry out to the Father and say, Father, in in the dearest of terms, the word Abba, Father, is the affectionate name you would give for a dad. He's much more than that, obviously, but you know what? You can cry out to him and say, Oh, Father, oh, Dad, you are the one. When so much of my world is dysfunctional, you have this one who is never, who's always the same. He's always there for us. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. That's a pretty clear marker. And it's a warning, by the way, because if you don't have the Spirit of God within you, you're not his. You're lost. You're still in your sin. Your sin, that ordinance that's been written against you, has not been paid for in your life because you've not trusted Christ. He's offered it. And he's willing to to take that. He's willing to forgive. He's willing to transform. He's willing to seal you with his spirit. But you have to trust him. That's the invitation of the gospel, my friends. I I try to work that in every week. And I try to tell you, receive Christ. He make an eternal difference in your life. Not only for the positive things you receive now, but the, the escape from judgment itself. From hell. And the Bible is clear on that. Well... It's important because of the, their ministry, uh, their master, and he's also, and lastly, the great motivator. He motivates us. When we read there in the last verse of Mark's gospel, and he says, And they went out and preached everywhere the Lord, working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying of signs. Amen. <laughs> you know what? There was this motivation. Because the Lord left... And he ascended up into his rightful place. And he promised he was coming again. These disciples that went at the crucifixion fled. And they were hiding. And they were scared. They became bold. They took up the message of the cross. And the resurrected Christ. And they went out and they turned the world upside down. That's motivation. 
It's what we need to, isn't it? Oh, I'm, I'm thankful we have such a God today. Well, we conclude our time in the book of Mark. And I like how Mark ends the, book, the gospel of Mark. He ends it with an amen. <laughs> amen is so be it. And I don't think you could say it any better than that. When God wraps up his message, he says, amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful we've been able to study through this book here in the scriptures. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to help us think on these things. And truly, Lord, I again just pray today that if there's anyone here that is a stranger to you, that has not trusted you by faith, that they would do this even in this very moment. And they would say, Lord, I believe. Please come and forgive me of my sins. And Lord, make me a new creation. Change my heart. And Lord, that we would plead to you today, thanking you for that, for so great salvation that is able to save us to the uttermost, to save us eternally. What a great sacrifice that is. And we want to pray again that you be lifted up, and we thank you again for your word. Confirm it in our hearts. And motivate us to take it with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.